Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and to our Thursday noon Town Hall Forum. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation located at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. These forums are free and open to the public. They occur some six times a year between September and April. We're in the middle of our third season. Attendance has been ranging between 700 and as many as 2,200. I'd say today we were perhaps somewhere in the middle of that. Those in our radio audience, and there is an increasing number of you, are warmly invited and encouraged to come and, and be present in person. The overarching theme for these forums is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. We're persuaded that the church, and not least of all a church located as we are in the center of a thriving metropolis, has a responsibility, indeed a calling, to raise major issues facing our world and to address them with the help of concerned, articulate people who have earned a right to be heard. Minnesota Public Radio has broadcast live and then rebroadcast these forums from the outset, and we're now being carried nationwide over American Public Radio. The General Mills Foundation is co-sponsoring today's forum and handling broadcast and rebroadcast over the American public radio system. Our areas of concern over the past three years have included uh, such a range as the arts, foreign affairs, psychological issues, communication, nuclear matters, armament and disarmament, and today we are back to the arts. Our speaker is Eugenia Zuckerman, flutist, recording artist, novelist, and arts critic. Ms. Zuckerman is music commentator for CFBS's News Sunday Morning Program and appears regularly as soloist with major orchestras both in this country and overseas. Her recent novel, Deceptive Cadence, has been enthusiastically received as an astute, knowledgeable look at the inner world of the totally committed artist, of which she is one. Her theme today, the power of music and the music of power. Before asking her to speak on that intriguing theme, allow me to read a quick quote from an interview with her. She wrote, she said, we expect instant gratification from everything today. But, she insists, passion, zest, joy aren't instant. You have to give your attention, your concentration. Discipline is an essential part of passion. Well, Ms. Zuckerman, we are here today and we're ready to give you our full, our disciplined, our concentrated and therefore our impassioned attention. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, especially 
since I come from the East where we have real winter. <laughs> the Power of Music and the Music of Power. That's my title, and I will ramble around it until we get somewhere close. Memories from childhood are vivid, if unreliable. They are based not necessarily on fact, but rather on a synthesis of imagery and sensation. Often, on reflection, it seems it was an occurrence or event that took place in our earliest years that marked our lives forever. I have two such recollections from my early years that, fused together, formed one lasting impression. The first, the time mother washed my pet turtle to death. It had climbed onto a towel and was inadvertently taken to its untimely but clean end. Discussions about death followed, the possibility of afterlife, the subject of God was raised, and somehow, in childish confusion, I came away from the talk believing the Almighty was a giant celestial tortoise. This image stayed with me for some time, the giant carapace in the sky, the awesome head and tail, the four spiky legs. I wondered if he snapped. This would explain thunder. His angry red eyes, lightning. It took time and more discussions until the concrete image dissolved into the abstract and certainly more beneficent God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the abstraction was troubling. If God was not a turtle, and could not be seen, then where did his or her power come from? Answers were not satisfactory. It seemed, so I was told, I would have to experience his or her power for myself. And then I did. Memory number two. I was sitting on the rug in front of the television set. It was an Emerson, one of the first. It had one of those round 10-inch screens, and every time it broke down, my father had to do the repairs. Anyhow, I was sitting there, playing with my doll, talking to it, hoping that Kukla, Fran, and Ollie would soon be on instead of these dreary grown-ups I saw before me in black and white, holding musical instruments, tuning up. Finally, a figure appeared on the screen, a man with streaming white hair and bushy eyebrows, a commanding presence. He stood on the podium, back to me, then suddenly he wheeled around, looked furious, placed a forbidding finger to his lips, and hissed a loud and frightening, shh. I was the only one in the room. <laughs> he must be talking to me, I thought. I was mesmerized. This man had power. This must be God, I reasoned. And there are those who say Tuscanini would have agreed with me. <laughs> As he led the NBC symphony through a Beethoven symphony, I sat very still, listening, afraid he'd turn around and scold me again. He didn't, but there was Beethoven, and I heard the power of it, and I paid attention. Did I like it? I don't recall, but I listened. In retrospect, it is not so odd that I confused the search for God with music. Historically, early music was a means of communication between man and the forces he did not understand. Obviously, music's function has changed since the days when primitive man leapt around the fire, beating drums and chanting. 
But it seems to me that music is still a way of searching for something beyond ourselves. It is an expression of the inexplicable, the ineffable. It is a bridge between ourselves and the infinite. Each of us has experienced music's primeval roots. Rhythm is the foundation of music, and if we don't remember our mother's heartbeat, we just have to take it on account that we must have heard or felt it in the womb. Sometimes I'm struck by the fact that I play an instrument, the flute, whose history is as ancient as man himself. In the murky fog of prehistory, some semi-upright hominoid was probably blowing across a hole in a reed, summoning up spirits. The flute is supposed to have incantatory powers. I don't know how we can substantiate the claim, but I do know that for a ninth grade science project, I played my flute to a group of nasturtiums while a control group was left in silence. <laughs> the serenaded plants, of course, grew faster which proves that for unemployed flutists, there might be work in the field. <laughs> Agrisonics aside, the flute surely has powers of arousal. D.H. Lawrence didn't miss its phallic qualities when he wrote a book about a flute player called Aaron's Rod. In ancient Greece, the women were not allowed to hear flutes because the sounds might have excited them. Even today, in a remote section of the Amazon River Basin, the Mehinaku Indians forbid women not only to hear the sacred flutes of the men, but even to see them. However, in what we call the civilized world in these sexually liberated 1980s, the flute is the most popular instrument. Of course, its sensual appeal is only one reason for its popularity. In fact, this is the second golden age of the flute. The first was during the 18th century when monarchs like Frederick the Great were devotees and practically every gentleman in Europe could play a tune. But the popularity of instruments swings like a pendulum. In the 1930s, there were more string players than Montevani could ever have used in his orchestrations and few fine flutists. Today, the opposite is true. Too many flutists, few fiddlers. The bug is catching and flute fever has reached epidemic proportions. There's hardly a teenager on the street without a flute case dangling from his or her arm. In the 60s, it was the guitar, but the 60s was an era of social unrest, and the guitar was used to accompany songs of protest. The flute is a far less social, more introspective, individualistic instrument. If then, as they tell us, the 1980s are the me years, then perhaps there is some connection. Or, maybe, it is the malaise of anonymity that makes the flute attractive. Each player has a unique, identifiable sound. Playing it is an assertion of self. For whatever reasons, I've spent more than 20 years playing it, and my connection is so visceral that when I don't play it, I feel physically ill. Sometimes when I play it, I feel physically ill too, but <laughs> it's another story. Let me, as a woman, address for a moment the strength of women as performers. In 1981, I wrote an article for the New York Times in which I tried to answer the question, why aren't there more women superstars in classical music? In that article, I carefully and deliberately narrowed my subject to the performance of classical instrumental music. But if we take the word of a New York critic as absolute truth, which we always absolutely do, 
It seems I could now, two years later, let my generalizations spill over into all areas of the performing arts. Let me quote from Bernard Holland's January 31st review of a duo concert by Placido Domingo and Cheryl Mills. Quote, the performing arts, at least at the star level, seem to have drifted into the world of men. At the movies, Paul Newman stands tall. But where are the Hedy Lamars and Rita Hayworths of 40 years ago? Margot Fontaine dominated the ballet after World War II, but today it is Nureyev and Baryshnikov who grasp our attention. And so it has been in opera, unquote. If Mr. Holland is right then, despite liberation and equal rights, women's star status in the arts is decreasing, not increasing. There are probably many reasons besides the ones I concocted a couple of years ago. I do have one new thought to offer. These great female performers for whom Mr. Holland nostalgically yearns were women of mystery. Their lives were cloaked in secrets. They pulled myths around them like cashmere capes. Now, with the advent of the tell-all, see-all, show-all talk show, not only can we learn every intimate detail of a star's life, but we can have her visit us in our own living room every week. Perhaps, to be truly charismatic, a woman on stage must be unattainable and vulnerable at the same time, distant yet alluring. To know her is perhaps not to love her. Nonsense, my husband, the violinist, violist, conductor, and man about town, Pincus Zuckerman, says. <laughs> Women had better training back then. They were better musicians. Show me a Myra Hess or a Maria Callas, and I'll show you a superstar. Male chauvinist? Maybe. But maybe just once in his life, Pincus Zuckerman agrees with a critic. <laughs> I take exception when male critics write excessive physical descriptions of female performers. Here's a choice quote from a recent review of a soprano, again from the New York Times. She appeared in full prima donna regalia, complete with an artsy hairdo and a flowing sparkly gown. She looked terrific, but she didn't sound terrific. How about this one describing a violinist? This from the Washington Star, quote, she paraded onto the stage, her dazzlingly diaphanous midnight blue drapery clinging to the smallest shred of actual clothing, her jet black hair falling across a bared shoulder and cascading halfway to the floor. These two examples could be justified, I suppose, as reports of the visual aspect of the performances. But isn't there just a wee bit of prejudicial tone to the writing? Concert attire does imitate our formal dress code, which is based on the 19th century concept that women can and should look seductive and fetishistic, whereas men are dressed in drab and unvaried uniform. But have you ever read a review that described a male performer's appearance with the comparable detail of the two I've just quoted? I'll make one up. <laughs> he strutted onto the stage his jet-black, silky suit clinging to his taut quadriceps. <laughs> his blonde ringlets bouncing insouciantly. His patent leather shoes sparkling brilliantly. He looked like a million dollars, but he played like a bounced check. <laughs> Why 
women may have come a long way, baby, but if we take a look at current advertising, it seems to me we're sliding backwards. My very least favorite ad of recent months shows a woman standing on a podium wearing nothing but her soft cup front clothes bra and luxurious satin trico bikini lavished with lace. In her right hand, she holds a baton, and at her feet, yes, at her very feet, a swarthy violinist is playing his instrument while she smiles above him, leading the orchestra. The maiden form woman, the copy says, you never know where she'll turn up. Some kind of convoluted thinking had to have gone into the creation of this masterpiece. I remember when the maiden form maiden could only dream, and those dreams were not terribly ambitious. I dreamt I went dancing in my maiden form bra. Update that ad, I can just hear the mavens yelling. Women today don't dream of being something, they are something. Yeah, the ad men must have agreed. They are doctors and lawyers and symphony conductors. Let's show them in these positions of power in their panties. <laughs> Great going, guys. Madison Avenue has done it again. But someone should tell them that an ad like the conductor in her lace, nylon, and trico does not encourage the public to take a woman on stage seriously. It simply encourages them to take her. <laughs> Regardless of which sex performs it most successfully, Music has played an essential role in the human drama. Whether for religious or secular purpose, for storytelling or for dancing, for seduction or for solace, music has sustained the human spirit. In turn, man has supported music. At first, the church maintained music, then the community. It was during the 15th century that composers began to work regularly at the courts of wealthy rulers and composed non-religious music. The most powerful music was subsidized by the most musical in power. The Duke of Burgundy employed many of the best musicians in Europe. The court of the popes of Rome supported composers like Josquin Desprez and Giovanni Palestrina. Monarchs themselves, like Henry VIII and Frederick the Great, wrote and performed music. Louis XIII and his son Louis XIV had an orchestra of 24 violins, which was later copied by Charles II of England. It is due to the Georges I and II of England that Handel wrote much of his music, and if not for Prince Esterhazy, Franz Joseph Haydn might not have turned out a new work nearly every week. By the 19th century, concerts went public and patronage poured in from the private sector. Thank you, Mr. Kreutzer, Mr. Razumovsky, Madame de Rothschild, and Mr. Joseph von Sonnenfels, to name but a few. This whimsical historical survey of subsidy is situated in Europe where culture is still an essential and integral part of people's lives and where music is still strongly supported by governments and private individuals. But here, across the Atlantic, how can we characterize the state of music in particular and the state of the arts in general? There are pertinent statistics and there are subjective opinions. I'll give you a little of both. A recent Harris poll showed that 61% of the American public does not think government should give grants to the arts. The following statistics support that poll. This year, Great Britain will spend $3.60 per person for the arts. France, $11.88, and Austria, $100. In the United States, the commitment per citizen is 70 cents, 70 cents. Despite the small amount spent, we are told by the National Endowment of the Arts that in the last 15 years alone, 
there was a 260% increase in the number of cultural institutions around this country. Well, what percent of that percent were musical institutions? Perhaps a pertinent figure from New York's concert halls answers this question. In 1950, in New York, there were an estimated 2,000 musical events in a single season. In 1981, the New York Times reviewed nearly 1,500 concerts, but the total number of events was at least four times that. Okay, so there are more concerts. But what about the quality of the programs? Let's look, for example, at new music. Is it being adequately encouraged? There are many new music groups, but are contemporary works being incorporated into the programs of the touring virtuosos who have the power to promulgate them? While critics are holding their ears and saying, oh no, please, not again, not Beethoven's second, the concert auspices want to please their important patrons who, so they reason, want to hear what they know. This idea, I risk saying, is condescending. I am reminded of the time my husband played a recital somewhere in Florida. He had programmed the fantasy for violin and piano by Arnold Schoenberg. Our audience will hate it, the auspices complained, but Zuckerman refused to change the program. The night of the concert, backstage, pressures mounted, and begrudgingly, Zuckerman trotted out on stage and announced that he had been advised that the Schoenberg, although written nearly 50 years ago, might be considered too avant-garde, and therefore he was changing the program. Hold it, an octogenarian in the audience shouted, waving his cane. Let's hear some of that newfangled music. <laughs> Even though most concert programs concentrate on music written 200 years ago, there certainly are more classical concerts than ever. There is positively a proliferation. Television brings it to us weekly. Classical music is no longer the terrain of the effete elite. It's played by all kinds of nice guys and gals who can cook on the Diner Shore show and clown around with Johnny Carson. Supposedly, this brings more people into the concert halls. But it can, I think, also lead to the creation of false expectations. The new concert goer enters the concert hall feeling an intimacy with the artist he's come to hear play a concerto. After all, he's seen him do his imitation of Clark Gable on the Merv Griffin show, or heard him tell the hilarious story of losing his bags en route to Helsinki, or seen him perform with John Denver. When the concerto begins, will he, the new concert goer, expect the artist to clown around and do his shtick? Will he enjoy the rest of the program? Will he listen quietly? Will he be disappointed? As a servant to the composer, the interpreter should be the medium for the message. Instead, it seems the message is a victim of the media. The musician is more popular than the music, and charisma is more saleable than art any day. Television is largely responsible for the cult of personality in the arts, a cult that has its precedent in the 19th century. True, when Liszt played, the ladies fainted. But he was considered the high priest in the temple of art, not a jet-age superstar courting box office sales. If I were dictator of this country, a friend of mine said, the first thing I would do would be to ban television. This potential benevolent despot happens to be an executive at one of the major TV networks. I do not share his despair. There are fine programs, like CBS's Sunday Morning, <laughs> and there's live from practically everywhere, and there is public radio. And our children should be encouraged to watch and to listen. Then they should go practice. If I were dictator of this country, 
the first thing I'd do would be to give every child a recorder. Why? Learning music combines self-discipline with self-expression, two essential ingredients of psychological well-being, and it teaches us to listen. When Toscanini turned around and told me to be quiet, I listened. But that was 1948, and not obeying had consequences. The autocratic attitudes of yesterday have evolved into the increasingly permissive and egalitarian postures of today. Recently, at a theatrical performance in New York, I turned to a group of rowdy teenagers next to me and said, would you please be quiet? Why should we? It's boring, was the smart-ass answer. This charming response was, of course, merely a minor infraction when we consider the larger public affronts like muggings and robberies and rapes that are daily unpunished occurrences in our cities. It seems our standards of behavior have been grossly compromised. A few months ago in Miami, when riots took place, followed by looting, one public official was heard to say, well, what can you expect? You turn the lights off and people will steal. What can you expect, indeed? Once we stop expecting civilized behavior, it's just a matter of time before we return to the marauding bands of outlaws who ruled the 14th century. I'm in no way advocating a right-wing law and order now approach to solving the problem, nor do I mean to equate bad theater manners with lawlessness. But one can be prelude to the other, and both are symptomatic of the disintegration of consequences for poor behavior. Poor behavior at public performances comes, I believe, from our TV watching habits. Not only do we talk to each other during programs, but we have become accustomed to endless commercial breaks. Our national attention span has been shortened by those creative ad people who are so clever and successful. But just as the snows of Minneapolis will melt, there is hope. My heart leapt when at a movie last week in New York City, a sign flashed across the screen along with other pre-feature announcements. It said something like, talking may be disturbing to your neighbors. Please refrain from conversation while the movie is being shown. This announcement was met by a round of applause from an obviously beleaguered crowd. It is a sad comment that we need such announcements at all. But now that they're here, who knows? Maybe being considerate will come back into fashion. It's one thing not to annoy your neighbor. It's another to know how to listen. A young and well-connected stockbroker recently asked me a stunning question. Having seen classical music on television, knowing it's the in thing, he went to his first concert. Tell me something about classical concerts, he began. I went to my first one last week. Did you like it, I asked. Oh, yes, he said. I sat there and read the newspaper and the time passed very pleasantly. Is this acceptable concert behavior? How could I answer? Obviously, he never learned to listen. I don't mean to suggest that all first-time concert attendees are sitting in the audience with a New York review of books, or worse, hidden in their programs. But in order to enjoy classical music, people do have to know what they're listening to. Hearing a popular, much-played showstopper, like a Tchaikovsky concerto on television, does not prepare a novice for the intricacies of Till Eulenspiegel or the subtleties of La Mer. I'm not blaming my stockbroker friend. He didn't study music at home, and he certainly didn't get it at school. At a time when there is little money for anything, it might, to some, seem flippant to suggest that we need, in this country, a comprehensive revision of our musical education programs, and for that matter, our arts education programs. There is too little, and it's mostly mediocre. The arts are like an essential protein for the maintenance of civilized existence. 
Our children must learn that culture is more than a dollop of whipped cream on the chocolate cake of life. I could use this forum to berate the government's budget cuts for the arts or implore corporations to increase their support for the arts. Yes, we need money, we need it now. We must all militantly lobby, lobby for increased support for the arts. But in order to support something, you must be convinced of the value of that which you support. We must look further ahead than this year or next. We must educate the next generation and the next and do it properly. Would it cost so much? Couldn't we somehow incorporate the arts more meaningfully into our children's education so that in the year 2003, some endangered species like a flutist will not step onto a stage to be greeted by 2,000 people reading newspapers? The arts in America are in jeopardy. The danger is not that they will disappear. They never have and they never will. But the arts are becoming a luxury instead of an integral part of our daily lives. They are be being treated as commodities to be packaged and sold and in the most palatable fashion. And we are selling them to an increasingly culturally illiterate public. The arts are not for the elite. They are for those who understand. To understand, we must learn. While the power of art has never been stronger, the art of those in power is weak. We must somehow convince those with power that to nurture the creative potential of this country is to create a powerful future. In a world where too many things look alike, taste alike, sound alike, art offers us the unique. In a world where there is violence and corruption and an impending threat of global annihilation, the arts remind us that there is beauty, there is truth, there is, after all, hope. Thank you. I didn't see a single newspaper in the crowd. <laughs> I can't help but reflect on a statement you were quoted as having made, saying, all I care about is that they don't say she wrote a good book for a flutist, or that she plays the flute well for an author, or we might add, or gave a good speech for a flutist and an author. <laughs> you gave a very good speech. I, I love this aside, too. She pronounces it flutist, by the way, not flautist. She points out that this is one of those words for which there is no correct pronunciation. The English say flautist or flautist, and she laughs because I always think flautist sounds like someone who makes a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Let's make it simple. I play the flute. <laughs> and that, to me, suggests the whole flavor of your statement. It was very real and uh, genuine. Let me say that this is the time for a break for those of you who must uh, take your leave following this half hour together, so don't feel embarrassed to leave if you must. And let me at this moment remind our radio audience that they are listening to the Westminster Thursday noon town hall forum emanating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis.
I did ask one or two folks to prepare a question or two in advance that uh, we might be about our business even while other questions are coming forward, Ms. Zuckerman. Let me put this one to you. How, in your view, do the arts transmit the values of a society? And could you comment on contemporary arts in that light? I think the way that art transmit the va transmits the values is that art seems to me to be a direct reflection of what is going on in the society at the time. I do think that there are a lot of positive trends in contemporary art in America. I would say it's in fact very forward-thinking art that is being put forward today. I think that the plays that are coming up on Broadway, the books, the um, concert experiences somehow are reflecting our increased respect for complexity. That is, I think we live in a society where things are good or bad, black or white, things are right or wrong. And I think that we are seeing a dissolving, and I think a, a good and necessary dissolving of these barriers and this kind of respect for complexity is really mirrored in the movies of today and in the, in the arts in general. I think we can be very proud of what's going on in the arts here in America. Thank you. Here's another question. Uh, it it uh, bears on something you've said. You, you said something about music being a bridge between ourselves and the ultimate. And here's the question. Historically, a great many of the masterpieces of music have been written for the church or motivated by the church. This no longer seems to be the case. Would you care to comment? I think you began to comment earlier. Well, I think historically we see that as, as man's life became less and less connected only to the church but also to outside concerns, music became secular and um, is concerned with all aspects of life. I think that uh, we are seeing in contemporary music a return perhaps to um, a more accessible kind of music. Um, I think uh, just what comes to mind immediately is the opera The Postman Always Rings Twice uh, by Stephen Paulus, a Minneapolis composer, which was done in um, St. Louis. And that is a piece which is extraordinarily strong but very accessible and, and very melodic and, and extremely secular. I think that there is a lot of also church music being written, that is, uh, settings for texts of the Mass and uh, other religious services and ceremonies. And I think these are being done with increasing creativity. Here's a, a, a professional question. Would you suggest that performers comment on the music they're going to perform? Uh, and the person says, I f uh, would find that very helpful. What, what is your thought about that? Well, I, I um, believe in ambivalence, and I am ambivalent on this question. I enjoy talking to an audience. I think, as I said in my talk, it's important to understand what you're going to hear. And often program notes are a little bit too dry and hard to understand. It's a lot easier when the performer tells you this piece was written by Bach when he was unhappy or something gives you a, a kind of flavor for what you're going to hear. On the other hand, uh, I think what you lose is the necessary distance between the performer and the music that he's playing. 
I think you want to know that the performer up there is human. In fact, nothing gets an audience closer to you than uh, breaking a string before you play or mm -hmm. having some sort of problem that makes the audience think, oh, that's a human being up there playing. And uh, you do have a sense of the audience drawing near. However, if you are going to chat up the audience, you are going to become friendly and intimate. And then the concert begins. And a concert is not an event for passive listeners. They have to be really concentrating and they have to be slightly distanced from the performer. As I've said in, in, in that speech, I think the performer has to be the medium for the message and crossing the barriers is, is a tricky mm -hmm. trick. Mm -hmm. These two are, are related and somewhat loaded. Do you have an explanation why there is discrimination against women performers and do the conductors of the major orchestras discriminate against women performers? Well, I answered this a little bit. I think it's a very complex question. I don't think there's discrimination. I think it's simply that men are more successful at it. I think that there are many reasons for this. And I think that um, the excellence of women performers is seen everywhere. I, know, I think it's no longer true that male conductors want uh, male performers. Um, I think that there are many women out there performing at a very high level and a very high standard, and the reasons are terrifically complex mm -hmm. as to why men are simply more successful at it. Okay. Uh, I did a bit of homework on you before you came, and this was another uh, quote that, that intrigued me and I think might uh, trigger some added comment on your part. Uh, you said, two years after our marriage, during one of Pinky's concerts, I had a severe shock of realization that began to change things. I was so totally wrapped up in every note he played that when the audience stood up and started cheering, I had to make myself realize that it wasn't me they were cheering for. <laughs> Pinky and I are two separate people. It suddenly dawned on me, almost violently, that however much I wanted him to do well, it could not fulfill all of my life. I decided then and there that I had to do something myself, and I chose flute playing. Do you want to, you know, sort oh, of elaborate on that? Oh, now he's getting personal. Uh-oh. Okay, well. Uh, I think that was a little epiphany I had, which has been useful to my life, and I think it probably resonates with a lot of lives of a of great many women today. I think I simply realized I had to be my own person. I think that this is something that the young women I'm meeting today uh, have no issue over. They simply know they're going to be their own person. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I'd like to comment on this, rather than talk about me, is mm -hmm. to, to talk about um, a trend that I see that I find kind of worrying. The New York Times, to get back to my favorite periodical, I uh, have been interested that in recent months there have been many articles about women giving up their jobs in favor of child-rearing. You see that in all of the timely magazines of today, that women are simply tired of being super, superwoman, and they decide, they discover they simply can't do it, and therefore they're going to stay home and look after the children because this is totally fulfilling. Again, there is a tendency, I feel, in this country to be very definitive. Things are good or bad, things are right or wrong. We all follow trends. We are in a sense like sheep. When it's time to jog, everyone jogs. When it's time to play tennis, everyone plays tennis. When it's time to work, we all work. I think that there's a, 
a difficult and perhaps dangerous reactionary trend among women in this country. And that is that the militant feminism that was perhaps to some of us distasteful, but nonetheless so amazingly effective and important, is now looked on with a reaction by women who say, but it's too hard. It's just too hard to try to work and to do it all. And therefore, the correct answer is to give it up and to be a mother and a wife. Now, I feel that the most important thing I do is being a mother and a wife. However, I also know, not just from this epiphanous moment in my life, but that I couldn't be only that and be fulfilled. That's me. I have friends who are mothers and wives and are totally fulfilled at it. I think the danger in a reactionary trend is that there becomes a kind of a peer pressure for women, young women in particular, to say, okay, it's too hard, I won't do it. And I think we have to remember that um, we're all like snowflakes, not one of us is like anyone else. And if you can be happy hearing the applause for your husband and staying home with the children, that's you. But if you can't, then you just have to do what you have to do. I hope it's not uh, betraying any uh, private conversation, but we were lamenting in the library that your husband uh, wasn't uh, here today with you and to have lunch after together. And uh, if I may quote you, he's home taking care of the kids where he should be. <laughs> I do think that um, Pinky Zuckerman, if he couldn't play the violin, he would open a daycare center. He, <laughs> he does adore children and he is particularly good with them and particularly his own two daughters. I do think that um, because of the nature of our lives, we have had to engage in a great deal of job sharing at home, which we do happily. And I think that um, when I say to Pinky, look, I've got to go to Minneapolis. I have to go talk about you on the radio. <laughs> you know, you've got to look after the kids because you're free. I don't have to organize him. I don't have to say this is what you do. He, he does it. And I think this gives him a sense of competence and an emotional sense of competence. I think that, that all men should be able to experience that. I, I'm not one who advocates that um, men should have equal, equal responsibility in the child rearing, but it, it certainly, I think for Pinky, gives him a really clear sense of his manliness. Not that he needs to worry about that. <laughs> musical question. If dissonance is an acceptable form in art, how can the pre-dissonant generation retrain its ears? Ooh, that is wonderful. The pre-dissonant generation. What you're saying is that there are folks out there who are used to listening to Beethoven, Brahms, and how are they going to get themselves used to listening to atonality? I think that one has to listen. One has to listen and then listen again. It's also very useful to read something, some literature about the music that you're going to hear. And I think that experience will bring us to and closer to difficult music um, in a way that no talking or no intent can do. You can't say, I'm going to go to this concert, I'm going to enjoy this music. You have to go and perhaps, perhaps there are other ways to listen to it that we are not really utilizing. 
I have found for myself that when I've gone to hear particularly difficult music, sometimes I can have an emotional response to it that I am unused to, to hearing. I think that it's important to be open. And I think one of the beauties of living in this country is that we are an open society. We are a, a self-critical society. And we are capable of handing questions in like that. How, how, we are endlessly asking ourselves, how can we be better? How can we do this better? How can we be more effective? And I think that's uh, part of the beauty of participating in the America of today. You mentioned some of the great composers. The question from the floor is, do you think there will ever be another Bach, Beethoven, Wagner, etc.? Well, I think the answer to that is we never know, except retrospectively. I don't think that Bach in his day knew who he was. <laughs> uh, and many composers who have had great successes in their lives are totally lost to us now because they didn't wear well. Look at the world of art. Did anyone think in the beginning that um, Picasso was going to be the monument that he is? Or Stravinsky, when the Rite of Spring was done in 1913, it was a riot. They thought it was atrocious. And we only know in retrospect. So maybe, maybe Mr. Bach and Mr. Beethoven are here right now writing music. Maybe you've even heard some of the greatest music which will be in the 21st century thought of as a great classic on what you've just said. How do you weigh the value of emphasizing the classics in musical performances, a way of instilling the masterpieces in the consciousness of society, against the responsibility of exposing newer works? That is difficult. How do we teach our children music, or ourselves music, and make it accessible and make it palatable? I think it's important to teach the history of music, and you can teach it very quickly. And it doesn't have to be in depth or in detail. And to give a survey of music, you can do in a classroom in an hour's time. From that point onward, I think that you can give a good mix of classic and modern. And I think that in the best institutions and the best education, we do have a mixture of both, of, of all. Mm -hmm. types of music. I think it's the same as a very fine higher education. You come to studying a year of Proust after having had four or five years of studying other areas of French literature. It's the same in music. It's important to study Beethoven, Bach, Brahms. It's important then to move on and, and go into Webern and Schoenberg in the early 20th century. It's important to not emphasize, I, I don't agree that there is an emphasis on the classics. I think that in the, the better arts programs, there is a very good mix, and there should be. Mm -hmm. Here's, a, I think, a very probing question. What part do you feel the power of Wagnerian opera played in the surge of German nationalism of the 30s? What do you make of its renewed popularity today? Woo. <laughs> uh, Wagner obviously is a very emotional issue to people who think for a moment about the man's views of life. Um, I think that there are books written and there are people wandering around giving lectures about the uh, impact of Wagner and the rise of German nationalism. I think that 
Although in Wagner's case it's very hard to separate the man from his music, we now have a certain amount of distance. We now no longer believe or hold true as holy writ that what he says might be plausible. We look on it with a certain amount of skepticism, if not disdain. And because of that, we are now more open to hear the music for itself. And it is some of the greatest music ever written, ever conceived. It is total, total theater. It is total experience. And I think that um, time has been a great healer for all of us. I think that's why it can be popular today. This is a, a quote that I lifted from one of the statements about you or a quote made by, by you. There's a common quality to survivors, an openness, a generosity of spirit, a selflessness. And more than anything, there is the belief that through the worst hell, there is something out there that validates life that is worth the struggle of it all. I seem to recall this was against the background of some experience you'd had in Israel with your husband, a time that you were there in a rather traumatic time? Well, speaking about the power of music, um, I had another one of those epiphanies in my life. Maybe I've had two or three. Uh, one of them was in 1973, and it had to do with the power of music. It was October of 73, and my husband and I and our then 10-month-old first child were in Israel and the war broke out. Well, I, being an American, was in a state of panic. Terror is what I felt. And war had been something that I had only seen on television and in the movies. And there I was in Tel Aviv knowing that, uh, that, knowing that a rocket from uh, Damascus was simply three minutes away from the heart of downtown Tel Aviv. I, I was in a state of panic. Two days into the war, Pinky and uh, Zubin Mehta, who was there conducting the Philharmonic, and Daniel Barenboim, who had flown in on a military transport to be there, as did many Israelis on the outside, sat around and said, we must play a concert. And I said, are you crazy? There are boys dying 30 miles away, and you want to make, play a concert? You're mad. And they said, you know, well, you don't understand about what the meaning of music is if you don't know why we want to play a concert. Make a long story short, they did play a concert. There was a blackout. People groped their way in the dark to this concert. They had to turn away practically a thousand people. Could not fit them all into the hall. The hall was packed and I sat there. There had been an air raid a few seconds before and I sat in the hall, that sense of terror, that iron claw of fear in my stomach, and I heard the opening of the Eroica Symphony, and my fears simply vanished. They disappeared. There was something said in that music, whether or not it was Beethoven that did it, I don't know, but something about the convening of people during time of war, and something about the message that was being transmitted seemed to me to be very important. It, it um, was a total experience that underlined for me the power of music. It said to us that despite the horrors, despite all of the ugliness of human nature and the worst atrocities we can commit one to the other, there is something that rises above it. There is something that makes us feel that there 
there's a reason for civilization. There's a reason that we are here. There's something beyond ourselves. And for me, that um, was a great moment. Made me realize the power of music. I, I gather that uh, your parents, uh, well, parents are important to all of us, but that somehow their emphasis on freedom and discipline and uh, the, the values that they represented are very important to you. Would you care to elaborate on that at all? Well, my parents, Stanley and Shirley Rich of Wellesley, Massachusetts, hi, Mom, hi, Dad, are <laughs> were terrific parents and very exacting parents. They were perhaps uh, products of the Depression. Uh, they were Jewish immigrants. They brought me up with religious background, and they were also taskmasters in their own way. And I resented it a lot as I was growing up. But looking back, as I've said before, retrospectively, I am very grateful to them. I've recently had an experience with one of our children, which I share with you only because I'm sure everyone goes through the same thing, and that is that our seven-year-old daughter, who is enormously gifted for the violin, said to me a few weeks ago, I hate the violin, I will not play it. To which I said, well, what do you hate about it? She said, everything. Well, what do you hate? She said, I hate to touch it. <laughs> and, and when a little urchin looks at you with these teary eyes and tells you how you're ruining her life and making her life miserable, it's very hard to, to say, well, when you're 20, you'll thank me. Pinky and I had long discussions about this because the child is gifted. What is the parent's obligation in a case like this? What do you do? We know it's a fine line. We don't want her to grow up and write a book like Ruth Slenzinska did called Forbidden Childhood. We want her to be a happy, well-adjusted child, but we also want to give her a sense of discipline. Well, we simply took this tack with her. I said to her, Natalia, this is part of your education. And I'm not asking you to sweep the cinders. I'm asking you to practice. Half hour a day, you will do it or there will be consequences. And you will do it because I want you, when you're 13, to be able to have a choice. At that point, you'll be old enough to know whether or not you really do hate the violin. I don't think you know if you hate it or not. But if I don't make you do it now, you won't have that choice when you're 13. Well, tune in in 20 years. I may have to pay a bill for, you know, analysis and all that, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's what we have opted to do, and only time will tell whether it's worth it. Thank you. Here's a question from the floor. You mentioned something about music relating to the search for God. Was this only connected to the Toscanini episode, or is it a deeper attachment? Oh, I think it's a much deeper attachment. Um, I just personally attended nine years of Sabbath school, and there was something that really struck a resonant chord in me whenever I would hear the organ music, whenever I would hear music played in a, in a spiritual setting. And outside of a spiritual setting, uh, as a teenager, I think that's when one develops a, a finer understanding of responses to music, I could sit and listen to Bach and have a sense of spiritual experience, that it was something outside of myself. The Tuscanini episode was the first of many of those. I have had them since many times. I had it in Israel that night in October of 1973. I have had it since. And I hope I keep having it. 
It's a nice feeling. <laughs> How would you start a child in a non-musical family on the road to the appreciation of good music? <laughs> I think if I had the wherewithal, I would give that child piano lessons. I think that the piano is the ultimate instrument. It is the complete instrument. It does everything. And a child can simply press down a note and get quite a nice sound. It's not like the screech of a novice violinist or the huff of a novice flutist. It's a, you just put your finger down, you get a sound. You can teach music that way. Um, and so if you can afford it, I would give the child piano lessons. I think if you cannot afford it, it's important to try to make sure that that child is exposed to music in the school. As I said in my talk, there's not much money for that in the schools, and uh, I'm horrified to hear more and more that music programs along with physical education programs are biting the dust in many schools around the country. If the child can't get it at school, then what do you do? Well, it sounds to me that a parent who would care about its child learning about music would also care to learn about it him or herself, and therefore there are concerts you can go to, there are free concerts, there is the radio. You can take a child by the hand and say, come with me, let's go downtown and hear this concert. Um, there are young people's guides to, the, to music in almost every city. I think that the way to take a, a child from a non-musical family and make that child appreciate music is for the parents to participate. It looks like we're beginning to run out of time. I have the feeling that we could go on and on. Uh, huh. I wish we could. Should have brought my flute. <laughs> Before paying a final salute to you, let me simply remind our radio audience that they have been listening to the Westminster Thursday Noon Town Hall Forum and that our speaker has been and is Eugenia Zuckerman who has spoken on the power of music and the music of power and uh, engaged us more latterly in a, a, a very fine question and, and answer period. Uh, let me remind also that the next forum will be Thursday noon, March 24th, and our speaker will be Dr. Harry Levinson, whose lecture in the Department of Psychiatry of Harvard Medical School and who will be talking about strain and stress in the business world. Strain and stress and old man river he's calling it. Well, I'm, let me just share one, one estimate of you that I came across the other day. It, it was following one of your performances and, and it was to this effect. The secret lies in her musicianship, which is consummate, and her taste, which is immaculate, and her stage presence, she is a sheer pleasure. And you have been. <laughs>